The Birth Circle podcast features experts in all the nuanced areas of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum with the aim of helping women make the choices that will keep them safe, healthy, and empowered. We respect all birth choices and believe in supporting informed consent and evidence-based practices. Nothing said on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. You should always seek the advice of a competent professional for your care. Welcome to the Birth Circle podcast. This is Sarah with Birth Circle, and today I have Sarah Pixton again. We had her as a guest last fall, and it was such an interesting conversation. I asked her to come back and go a little bit more in depth with us. I am um, a birth filmmaker, and so I love to talk about birth in terms of the emotion, the color, the movement, and what happens in birth. And um, Sarah is an amazing wordsmith. See, here we go. <laughs> and now I'm done. It's Sarah's turn. <laughs> I'm not a wordy person, wording person. Um, it's not my super power. But Sarah is the most interesting person to talk to about birth because, she, okay, and we're going to get into it. Okay. So <laughs> thank Sounds you for, <laughs> for coming um, again. And you have a, just tell tell the audience, you have um, a whole course. I do. Yeah. So birth words is kind of this little seed of wonder that was planted about <laughs> I'm a seed of wonder. See, I told you I'm a fantastic wordsmith. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, I guess it's been over a year now that I've been working on developing lots of different resources, but there's the podcast that I put out weekly. And then I've been working recently on full comprehensive courses for birth workers. Um, and down the line, I'm going to do the same thing for birthing families as well. And we had one in person at the beginning of March here in Utah, and we literally for eight hours just talked about our language and birth and why they matter and it's so nerdy. the power of words. It's so Talk nerdy. Talk dirty to us, Sarah. Talk dirty. <laughs> so nerdy. So even for somebody who, like me, I don't think in words, I think in colors, pictures, movement, and emotions. Um, it's just it's just to learn how powerful language is and how to use it uh, more effectively in birth. It's just, oh, it's my, it's my groove. Cool. <laughs> okay. So first of all, um, you were telling me about um, discourse and the, and the different, tell us about discourse. Yeah. So discourse, it's been defined differently by different linguists, but the one I typically go with is James Paul G. He's a linguist and he talks about discourse as language in context and in different contexts, you use different types of language, right? So you can think about how you speak differently when you're podcasting versus when you're talking to your kids. Mm -hmm. I versus when so. you're talking to your kids in a playful way versus <laughs> when you're talking to your kids in a, I am trying to get you to do something right, way. Use their middle name way. <laughs> versus conversations that you have with friends of your same age that are more casual. So we each inhabit lots of different social interactions throughout the day. And um, we alter our language in each of them. Um, and lots of times different professions will have different discourses. Dif sometimes this means they have different terminology, jargon, right? We call it a lot oh, of the like time. Jargon. Mm -hmm. um, and normally we use the word jargon to refer to vocabulary that exists in a discourse that you're not a part of, right? Like right. that's medical jargon because I'm not a doctor. So they're using all those words. I don't know. They're not considering it jargon when they're conversing in their medical discourse between two doctors. That's just 
the vocabulary set that they use in that discourse. Mm -hmm. We don't normally talk about like child speech as jargon, right? But it could similar, similarly, it's the vocabulary that you use in that certain context that isn't used in other contexts. So, um, with discourse and birth there, I feel like are two prominent ones that people talk about with birth as a physiological experience and birth as a medical event. Um, so the medical and physiological views of birth, or we talk about the midwifery model of care versus the medical model of care. And with those two different ways of viewing birth, there's normally different ways of speaking about birth. Now it's important to realize that that's not actually like clear cut line and doctors right. speak this way, midwives but speak this way. But we all know that when we go into the doctor, it's almost like they do speak another language to us. Mm-hmm. Especially if you've never, I mean, even they never say go pee in a cup. They say, we're going to do a urinalysis. And you're like, what? we're going to what the, what? <laughs> well, it was, it would be. <laughs> no, just go in the bathroom. Yeah. But, but it just kind of, um, the problem with it kind of makes the patient feel dumb or disconnected or not really heard. Yeah. So we were talking about how if a doctor was to communicate with you, the patient in the same way that he or she would communicate with colleagues, that would also feel strange and really strange and disempowering because you would feel spoken above and not like you were really invited to be a true participant but, in but the honestly, conversation. How many times have you done that to other people just to make yourself look smart? Just kidding. <laughs> no one. But I mean, I guess we do that. We do that, not just doctor patient relationship, but uh, we see that just in our culture. Sometimes people will use big words just to sound important or sound more knowledgeable, mm-hmm. just to like set the stage for their authority. Right. Yeah. So then we were talking about, okay, so what's the answer? Do do we have this scenario where the doctor completely changes the sort of vocabulary they're using and um, talks down to the patient yeah, or client down. or... Or uses client... It's like, oh, you're a preggers. Let's go pee in a cup. Oh, <laughs> like I, that would feel really unsafe. Like, please don't talk to me that way oh. if you're a doctor. Right. And it, they lose credibility and... And it feels patronizing, like it, maybe a you're bit, treating yeah. me like a child. Like, but you're using my language, so why does that feel like you're treating me like a child? But it really does. Yeah. So we're trying to come up with this middle ground where we both respect each other's authority in the sphere in which you have authority, and each person in the conversation recognizes this is the discourse you typically inhabit and the words that go along with it, and. I recognize that there is meaning and purpose and authority in the role that you play in that sphere. So as a birth giver, you have a role of authority that the doctor can't come close to compare to You're competing the one with, right? The baby. right? You're the one that's lived with this pregnant body for nine months. And the one who will be giving birth to it, mm-hmm. right? Being the active person in that scenario right oh yeah don't even get me started on the word delivered delivered your baby i did dang it (laughs) seriously yeah exactly it was delivered of my body (laughs) i did it um yeah and then of course as a birth giver you choose a care provider that you respect the authority of in the medical realm to care for your medical needs but i think 
that the sweet spot is when you recognize each other's authority and each other's value and kind of come together in this central place where neither one of you is necessarily speaking down or up to the other, but you're creating a new conversation, a new category of conversation, a new Mm -hmm. discourse in which you're both respected and empowered in your position. Do you think that, um, that one thing that could help is if the doctor kind of explains their words, like we're going to have to do this jargon, 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 which means we're going to layman's turn, layman's turn. And then you feel like you're kind of brought into the conversation, but he doesn't have to use a street language to talk about that. I don't know. Yeah. And then you maintain the credibility of, yeah, because like you said, you don't want your doctor to say you're let's go pee in a cup, especially if it's a group activity. <laughs> <Let's>. <laughs> um, <laughs> Choose your words carefully, <laughs> yeah, especially when you're being recorded. Um, <laughs> but there is some, like there's a place for those terms but I don't know that there's a place for the ones that are like inherently just disempowering because Ooh, there are we're some gonna of get those, to those, right? Yeah, we're going to get to those for sure. Um, but yeah, and I, it also is different for each client or patient or birth giver, right? Um, and I think that that's important too, to recognize the individuality of the person that you're conversing mm-hmm. with. And maybe you're a person that maybe you have a medical background and you don't need the terms explained for you right. and that and you would be feel belittling. That. The doctor should be able to assess that pretty quickly. I mean, he's seen you the whole, um, your whole pregnancy. He should, he should know he or she should know where you kind of stand medically. Mm-hmm. And if not, then he should, they, it, <laughs> the OB should it. be able to change or, you know, to, to meet that middle ground. And then you as a client, what can you do? linguistically to meet that their discourse more comfortably um i think we'll get into some more nuanced things but a lot of it is truthfully representing where you are and where you're coming from and recognizing yourself okay we talked about recognizing the authority in the other person but also in yourself Mm. and not saying okay i guess i'm in like i'm in a hospital gown or a client you know i derobed for the appointment so now I'm just in passive patient Mm -hmm. mode but continuing through your speech to recognize I am having this baby I am making these choices I'd love to hear your thoughts and opinions about or what does research say about induction at 39 weeks that you're recommending or whatever the conversation is that you're not giving up all of your authority yeah in it because well, like, you're recognizing For example, I'm else's. thinking a good example might be just simply eating in labor. Mm-hmm. If you, if you, the, the OB has come and said, we don't, we don't allow anything but ice chips and clear mm-hmm. fluids. And you can say, I understand the risk and why you, why you do this because of the risk of anesthesia during whatever. But you have to understand that I came into labor really quick this morning. I haven't eaten since lunch yesterday and I just don't do well with blo- low blood sugar. So can we talk about this? Is that an example of how you could? Yeah. I've just saying acknowledging who you are and where, yeah, my authority on my body is that I don't do well fasting. Right. Remember and that worldwide fast we did about a month ago, <laughs> my family and I decided we are never, ever all fasting at the same time again. <laughs> are you all still around? That Living was a bad idea. <laughs> 
because we now we know our limits. <laughs> I'm like I've done I've done long fast just by myself, but not with Mike. Anyway, yeah. So I mean, if you know your body and you know what your limits are, you're saying that's the authority you should trust is just knowing, knowing. I mean, you've experienced this pregnancy. Yeah. And and just not relinquish it. Right. Because just because you recognize an authority in another person doesn't mean that you relinquish any authority that you have. Say it again. Just because you recognize authority in another person doesn't mean that you relinquish your own authority. Thank you for the meme. (laughs) Exactly. Perfect. Yeah. That just needs to be branded. That you need to wear it on your t-shirt. Like that needs to be on your birth gown. While you're in, in labor, because really that's the balance, right? That's the balance. Acknowledging your birth provider's authority does not disempower you. Right. And you chose them because you recognize their authority and you want them as part of your support circle with that authority in their sphere. So, yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, um, uh, do you have any examples of how the birthing person can use those, use discourse, just any other examples about how they can use hmm. levels of discourse to get what they want, need? Well, so I think that one thing is recognizing what discourse do you naturally most operate in? And can I find a care provider who Ooh. also naturally operates in that discourse? Because then we don't have to be, then you have to be translating for each other language. all day that's long. That's a good point. So if I... Do you think that's why the midwife model of care, like that's why a lot of people are drawn to midwives because they use a different discourse? I think that that's absolutely the case. I mean, and I... There are also a lot of pregnant people that speak and feel more comfortable in a medical discourse. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's because they truly see themselves in the patient role and they prefer to be spoken to in those sorts of terms. I think that for the benefit of them and their birth experiences, it would be excellent if some shifting could happen that would wake them up to recognize that they don't have to relinquish their authority and be in a passive patient position. But um, where was I going with this exactly? Oh, I th- just the examples of the how they can use the discourse, choose which discourse, and pick right. a provider that matches theirs. Right. Where do I, what sorts of terms resonate with me when I'm talking about my pregnancy? And if I feel like I'm meeting with a provider who's I'm just butting up against like everything they're saying is rubbing me the wrong way or makes me feel less than or whatever, then maybe it's time to meet with several providers and find out who you click with linguistically, right? Like who, Ooh, who do you feel I like, like that, that per- this provider speaks my language, right? You may have three equally competent providers and one just works linguistically and that's the one you should choose mm-hmm. just purely on that. I mean, possibly. Uh, <laughs> there well, are lots of know, factors to consider. But. I mean, that's cool because there's so many people that, you know, say, oh, my OB won't let me. Right. Or they, and I wonder, I wonder if the OB's language somehow gave them the impression that they mm-hmm. couldn't where they, the OB was actually open to it, but the client mm. read it differently, right? Yeah, or even just the paradigm that the client is operating in, recognizing that doctor's opinion as the end-all be-all authority, whether they may or may not be open, like you said, to mm-hmm. conversation about different options. Yeah. Well, it's like I've seen, I've seen uh, clients 
say say something to their provider and that they think they're going to get pushed back and then they don't and they're like, oh, oh, I thought that was going to be a fight. <laughs> and it really wasn't. <laughs> Provider's like, sure, yeah, you could do that. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, what are some of the nuanced ways that in their discourse they can show a level of authority that's uh, overreaching, that's unhealthy? Yeah, so we've talked about some of these markers in conversation that can say, hey, I'm in a position of authority and you're in a position of lesser authority. Sometimes they're very subtle. Things like starting a comment with, okay, sometimes can be saying, okay, like ready to conform to the way that things are done. Okay, so this is what we're going to do here. Sometimes using that we or let's. Um, the royal we, my it. <laughs> the royal we. We are going to go pee in a cup. <laughs> right. Is this really going to be a group activity? <laughs> or are it, sometimes that can be indexing authority by speaking. I'm speaking for both of us, right? Because mm. I have more authority, so I don't need to ask your opinion or what your thoughts or feelings or perspectives are. Because I'm the authority figure, so I'm going to tell us what we are going to do. Because this is what we do. It's how this is done. Um, so that's one. Lots of these are nonverbal, too. Like with flipping through a clipboard, looking at notes while you're having a conversation with somebody. Um, even the, the things that people wear can make a big difference. Some doctors will choose to wear the white lab coat all the time and some will choose in their dress to show that they're coming from a different place, right? That they're not representing themselves purely as the medical expert, but also wanting to connect on a human level. So they'll wear, you know, scrub pants with a different kind of top or they'll mm. wear street clothes and those sorts of things also like language, like the words we use, are symbols mm -hmm. of position, of identity um, and position. And, and I've heard also that you can put yourself like, uh, if you're standing, you know, the person, if the person's higher than you, feel more authoritative. But mm. in the exam room, most of the time you're sitting on that table that's yeah. higher than them. So why do you feel so exposed and weird and uncomfortable well, because when they're sitting below you? Because your position is in, the, right? Because they're upright, at least, and you're often reclined. I think that's a position of less authority, which again is a great opportunity to have conversations sitting at eye level, mm -hmm. face to face. And if you're doing a cervical exam or if you're measuring fundal height or whatever, then for that procedure, yeah, be in the position that's needed. Right. But if we're going to be having a conversation about your birth preferences and those sorts of things. And let's look each other in the eye and be on the same level. So if your provider is using a lot of these verbal and nonverbal signs of uncomfortable authorities or anything you can do to gently take back that, you know, level the playing field, or is it just a, psh, he's a, he's a, you know, a word we can't say on air and I'm just going to go somewhere else. <laughs> That's a good question because there's certainly always the opportunity to find a provider that you feel more comfortable with, you feel more respected by. Um, but I also think that many, many of these things that doctors do are not done intentionally. They're just kind of right. the culture that so, has, right. So uh, there, there must be some things we can say back that are subtle to kind of let the doctor know 
there's yeah it's not you're not fighting for alpha but you're just fighting for you're just like hey wait wait a minute right and we never want to be no confrontational no. because that doesn't help anybody it's not right anything done but if you are just simply i'm maybe something as simple as making sure that you're speaking about yourself in the first person in the subject position of your sentences right so i'm choosing this or i'm curious about your perspectives about this or that or whatever just continuing to put yourself in the position of an actor and an agent as I, opposed to as opposed to even so what do you think about this what do you think about that what's the best way to do this or oh. that instead of saying i, I would like to have know. this goal for my pregnancy how can you help me meet it or what resources are you familiar Ooh, with powerful that can help me get to this goal so that you're not just saying like what's the best thing that can be thrust upon me what's the answer just instead saying I have this goal I have this perspective I have this preference and how can we work together as a team to make sure that that's respected wow that's so cool I think some of us uh, have a lot of uh, bad habits of just speaking, right. speaking in, and we think it's a, ter- it's, we think it's respectful if we say, what do you think about this? Mm-hmm. But really phrasing is, I'm curious about this. Mm-hmm. Curiosity is beautiful. Well, and, and of course, everybody wants to quell. I mean, if you say, I'm curious about, and you know, the person knows the answer, then they get all excited to like quell your curiosity. And that's, yeah. That's, Both sides are excited. Exactly. That's a much more healthy way to talk. So at home, I'm going to say, honey, I was wondering what you were planning to make for dinner. I'm <laughs> curious about why your homework isn't done yet. <laughs> yeah. I'm not really good with my authority. <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm just kidding. I think tonight's my dinner time. <laughs> dinner, <laughs> dinner night. Um, okay. And I wanted to ask you about how we, um, shifting gears a little bit, about how we assign words to our birth stories. And how when we express what we hope will happen to us and what has happened to us, how um, being mindful of the word choices can, yeah, better. Okay, just finish my sentence. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) Well, I feel like this is a really complex question that can bridge into, like, I have a background in applied linguistics and not in psychology, right? So, um, it's interesting because there are times when people in are, are in a certain place that they're not able to make the empowered or positive choice in the way that they frame their words. But I think also that we should never again relinquish our power as agents who can choose little things little ways to positively frame things. And I am not about whitewashing. I'm not saying... No, I'm not either. You guys say it how it is and there's nothing, you do not shove it under the rug and you just, nope, definitely don't store it in your liver or your spleen or your hip. Just (laughs) do, nope. Things, your story needs to be heard. Right. So that's just the nuance and the choice of language and how you're able, because I was thinking as a person, again, who doesn't speak in words, I feel like 
or thinking words. <laughs> Hi, I use words. To speak. Hey, sometimes you don't though. Actually, I don't. I'm fluent in ASL, so <laughs> there's pictures. Um, but I feel like so many times when a thought comes out of my head from the colors, pictures, movement, and motions, and it turns into a word, it's now solidified. Like mm-hmm. it's now has a form that's difficult for me to change. So I feel like if I mm-hmm. pick the words of my story incorrectly, it sets an emotion tone for my story that my body then follows. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I feel like there are a few things. One thing that I always recommend during pregnancy in preparation for birth is to choose the kind of words that you want to be part of your story and surround yourself in them beforehand. And that means reading a lot of birth stories or watching films and putting words to them or whatever, or even creating the visual image that you want for your birth experience. Not, you can't choose how everything will lay out, but the, what sort of, um, club are you inducting yourself into before Mm. you've even given birth? And with my two birth experiences, I feel like this made a huge difference because I had twins for my first and I was on bed rest for five weeks at the hospital and had all sorts of complications and was very much a passive patient. Like I literally laid in bed for five weeks before my babies were born. And I didn't ask questions in a way that I was the subject, right? I wanted to know what was everyone else's opinion about what Mm. should be done to my body. (laughs) I'm going to cry. That's tragic. Um, And... I I don't know that I inducted myself into any sort of birth story club before that birth, except, well, no, I did though, because I was pregnant with twins. So I was high risk. So I knew that other, Mm. that as a high risk, okay. And when I say new, I mean, adopted the perspective that as a high risk mother, I had limited choices and there were likely to be scary things and that I should get an epidural because it was fairly likely that surgery would be the end of whatever, these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember whether I actually read a lot of stories that way, but the language that I surrounded myself with before that birth was very much that I was a patient. Things were happening to me that were kind of outside of my control. And that's how my birth experience was mm-hmm. completely. And it ended in an, an emergency cesarean that I... Um, you never know how things would have turned out if you'd made different choices along the way. But I look back and I think, wow, I didn't have any authority in the choices that were being made. And there very well likely could have been opportunities for conversation. But you really did make choices because I'm sure that they asked you questions, but you took a more passive role in making those choices. Yeah. I mean, and, and sometimes questions weren't asked, right? Like yeah. we're going to get you started on some Pitocin. And I didn't have conversations about that. And I, like, why? <laughs> right. Like I've been laying in bed for five weeks trying not to have babies. Why do we need to get them here? Can we just let me walk now? around? They'll be here now. <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. Um, but in contrast, I had the most empowering experience of my life when I gave birth to my son. Um, a little over three years later, before his birth, I absolutely inducted myself in the Positive Birth Story Club. And I read lots of different stories from different experiences and perspectives. Many of them were not 
like I read Ina May Gaskin's Guide to Childbirth, which mm-hmm. none of those births take place in a hospital. I was preparing for a hospital birth. Um, I read several other birth stories from other sources and really just like was surrounded by positive language that spoke about birth as a beautiful transformative process in which I gave the gift of life to another human being and that I did that in my power and strength. And that's how I experienced that birth. And looking back on it, knowing what I know now, I trained as a doula shortly after that because it was such an empowering experience. like, you want more? It's a gateway drug. (laughs) Because of the gateway drug of birth. Um, But looking back, there are totally decisions I would have made differently about certain things. Um, But it was the most positive and empowering experience of my life. And I think a huge part of it was due to the words that I surrounded myself with. Because it wasn't without complication, right? It was not without complication. not without some fun things that happened. Not without a third degree tear, for instance. Um, We were swapping stories before we hit record about a different, another friend that had a third degree tear and spoke in very dramatic and traumatic terms, Mm -hmm. both to herself and anyone who heard about how that tear came to be, right? When I was giving birth to my son, I remember as he was crowning, thinking, oh, people say ring of fire. (laughs) Again, we talked about this before we pressed record. She has thoughts while she's giving birth. She has thoughts at crowning. I don't. (laughs) Like, in words. There are colors, motions, pictures, and movement. Hey, those are thoughts. They're just not words. Um, yeah, so You're he's, thinking, huh, this is, I'm this thinking, oh, the people ring. say ring of fire. Like this is burning, but I wouldn't quite categorize it as fire. <laughs> this is unmedicated, unmedicated ring course. of fire. And we're like analyzing <laughs> as like we're walking through it. it. Like ring of fire. I know I would call this more like few sparks, but not like, Gosh. okay, I didn't go that far, but I do remember thinking this is burning, but it's not fire. <laughs> I must not have torn. Um, right. I must not have torn. Surprise, surprise. My nine pound, six ounce son with like the head of my husband has a large circumference head <laughs> and he carried on the family I love your tradition. Word choice. Enlarged <laughs> circumference. It's a big old head. <laughs> the moneymaker. Um, <laughs> um, anyway. How did you feel about that tear? As they bring him to my chest and say, wow, you had some pretty severe tearing. We're going to stitch you up. And that continued to go on for an hour. <laughs> it, I didn't, I did not go spew trauma at people after that birth. I went out and I said, they said, how was your birth? And I said, it was so awesome. And they said, what? And like, no, when like a human came out of you. And I was like, it was the most empowering and beautiful and <laughs> experience of my life and I'm going to be a doula and I'm going to be there with other women as this happens and it's going to be awesome. Um, and I think that's the thing about birth and the power of our words and, and not just our words, but the words that we allow to influence us. Oh, I love that. That your birth experience, you can't control what it's going to look like. There are lots of choices that you can make along the way. Let's be clear. But there's so much that is completely out of your control that you can't mm-hmm. predict or know. But when you are inducted into a certain way of thinking about birth, a certain discourse, a way that we talk about birth, if you surround yourself with people who talk about birth as a transformative and beautiful experience, 
guess what? Transformative does not mean skipping around picking daisies, easiest thing ever. It means that you discovered strength you didn't know you had because you had to dig down deep for it and you found it and you came out feeling like a goddess, right? Yeah. Um, when we surround ourselves with those sorts of stories, then we tell different stories to the people around us and then we turn it over this cycle so that those people go into their births expecting something different, not expecting and the this, trauma. Yeah, I was going to say, this is not shoving trauma under the rug. Right. This is not um, pretending whitewashing or pretending right. it didn't happen. Because there is trauma mm-hmm. in birth sometimes, and that needs to be addressed um, because it just gets bigger. But don't you it's feel like if, if the whole experience were more acknowledged, we wouldn't have to use such traumatic language to get our point across? Mm-hmm. Because like I... I a story I told is after when yeah. I got the shakes and I didn't know what that adrenaline rush was and I was freaking out and which was making me shake more. And the doctor's like, if you don't stop breathing, so if you don't stop shaking, I'm going to make you breathe in a bag. And I didn't know what that meant, but it sounded scary. And so I kind of like squashed that. And just by that, it was more traumatic. And just, just, just if, if I could have just, and then when I tell the story, I'm like, the doctor was so disempowering. He told me to shut up or I'm going to, um, have to breathe in a bag. But if everybody just recognized that that's a pretty scary, that first time that adrenaline shot, yeah. then, then I could say, yeah, I didn't know that was coming. That was pretty wild and crazy. Right. Like instead of using the word traumatic and awful and, and cause that was, you know, just one part of the birth that was hard for me, but it was, it was kind of surprising, right? Does yeah. that make any sense? Like if yeah. we just spoke about these hard things and, and acknowledged them mm-hmm. and accepted, not accepted that they happen, that it's okay, but just I, I feel like sometimes we inflate our language to try and get our point across at how horrible it was. Mm-hmm. Like my kids do when they're like starving because they haven't <laughs> My kids eaten. are starving every 38 minutes. And they're so tired of the snack cart that I prepared for them because it doesn't have anything good on it. They're starving. I feel like they use language that they're trying to get the point across. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I digress because... <laughs> but, uh, you know... <laughs> You must have been spending a lot of time with your kids oh recently, gosh. haven't we all? <laughs> Just eat. <laughs> um, Feeding your kids recently. Yeah, but they don't, like, you don't have to use dramatic language. Mm-hmm. I understand you're hungry. You're 13. That's a very hungry age. Yeah. But anyway, if, if we if we use just more empowering language in generally in, in general when we talk about birth, would we feel like we had to use such traumatic language? And, and would that give you a safer space to talk about something that you experienced that did feel traumatic. Right. Would it be safer? Yeah. Because I wouldn't have to spend half my time convincing you that it was traumatic by using these traumatic terms. Because you'd be like, yeah, "Yeah, that's hard. That's really hard. And I know you would understand it. I don't know. Yeah. Sisterhood. I don't know. (laughs) What is, you know, what's in a real life example? Oh, dealing with contractors. There, there's a good example. Everybody knows dealing with contractors is hard. And if you want to stay married, you probably shouldn't build a house together, right? Or not a custom home. And, and yet we all, we laugh about it, right? And the trauma that our, that our contractors put us through. <laughs> Let me tell you, just kidding. Very random example. But I mean, that's, we know that it's hard to build a house or whatever, but we don't always accept that it's hard to have a baby. We expect if it was hard, then you must have been doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. Or your provider was doing something wrong. I don't know. Yeah. Reel me back in here, Sarah, because I feel like that soapbox is getting bigger and bigger. I'm just going to spin out here. (laughs) I was thinking when you just said that about, um, I think that we need to use language 
that recognizes that just because something is difficult doesn't mean that it can't be positive at the same time. Ooh. But I also want to be careful with what you're saying. We don't want to whitewash traumatic mm-hmm. experiences and they happen and they should be talked about in the right places with the right person to help you process through that trauma so that you're not going around spewing it all over other people who then go on to well, experience also, trauma because that's what they've heard. That too. And if, if you're not heard, then it just it re-traumatizes right. you almost. Like great aunt Mary, she's not going to understand your trauma. And so right. if you tell her the story, right. it's just going to be more traumatic yeah. to you because she can't. Yeah. Help you. And that's why there are awesome therapists, especially ones that specialize in this sort of thing, that you can have those conversations with and work through it and figure out how am I going to lastingly capture this experience? Because that's what our words often do is give something, give an experience, some sort of permanence, mm-hmm. a distilled version of what actually happened. But how am I going to tell the story to myself in a way that won't re-traumatize me yes. or people around me every yes. time I say and, it. And I know, again, speaking from somebody who doesn't think very well in words, um, I know that sometimes I just, like I said with that little soapbox, I just throw up on you, expect you to ring it in for me. Um, because, but, but I think sometimes I feel great when I um, am able to tell somebody how I feel and then have them reflect it back mm-hmm. in a way that's positive. So I may, that story about the breathing in the bag, then you could come back and say, wow, it sounds like you really felt afraid and alone and didn't know how that, and I'd be like, yeah, yeah, that's how I felt. And then you say, well, you know, how do you feel now if that were to happen? You know, like just hearing somebody else reflect back how I felt Mm -hmm. is so uh, healing. Yeah. Instead of them going, yeah, that damn doctor, they should, blah, blah, blah. That's not helpful. But But to be acknowledged and heard helps so much in healing. Mm -hmm. And that's not wiping the trauma away. Right. I guess it's the, it's the like if healing means forgetting. I don't think it can. Though. No, no, I know that's, right. but that feels like yeah. sometimes the belief right. is that if you just if you heal, like your third degree tear couldn't have been that bad if you're not talking negatively about it. <laughs> no, but I'm kidding. That it was, but you you've right. chosen to use right. words that are not so harsh. Yeah. And I think it was experienced differently because I came into it with words that expected a beautiful experience. And so I came out of it with those without having to, yeah, no, I don't. I don't generally tell people, my doula clients during the interview, I had a third degree tear, right? Like I don't generally share that story. Um, Except in <laughs> podcast episodes. <laughs> in front of the entire world. <laughs> um, because there's, it's tricky because anytime you are sharing a story, you're sharing your words, people are coming at it from their experiences and their perspectives. And hearing your story is in turn going to shape their future experiences and perspectives. So I just think it's, I don't have any like, conclusive thoughts about what exactly I I don't think there's a formula for perfection in this zone right I think it's very individual and I think it's just important to be mindful and recognize that this is an important space where we're receiving and shaping perspectives and experiences Mm. very cool so what are some of the resources 
again, tell them exactly where to find you, but then some of the other things that you would recommend them read or listen to? Ooh, good question. Well, I'll start with where to find me. So I hope birthwords.com is my website. There are a few different resources on there. There's the podcast tab where you can listen to any of the episodes that I've released. There's the classes tab where coming out on May 13th, there will be a little class, an introductory sneak peek online course for birth workers that's talking about language. In this one, we focus in on the complexities of communication, why it can be so difficult to communicate and how we can better understand it to be able to, to better communicate um, both with our clients and to support our clients as they better communicate with their care providers and others in their circle of support. Um, yeah, again, May 13th, that one will be coming out. It's available for pre-order now though. So birthwords.com slash classes. I think that's especially timely when many people are giving solely virtual support in this crazy crisis time we're in, um, where birth workers are not allowed in the hospital in many instances and are supporting their clients through text and phone and Zoom call. A lot of language is going on there. So the better we can oh, that's a great point. know, yeah, the better we can know what we're doing with our language, understand what others are doing, where they're coming from, the better we can support our clients there. So that's one resource. Um, what else do I recommend? I really just recommend getting in touch with your own feelings, beliefs, perspectives about birth, working through whatever ones are kind of feeling uncomfortable for whatever reason. They're negative, they're disempowering, they're fuzzy, whatever they are. Find a trusted friend to talk to. Hire a doula to have conversations with about where you're coming from with your expectations and your preferences for your birth. Um, read lots of great positive birth stories. Read some great books about birth. Read Ina Mae Gaskin's Guide to Childbirth. Mm -hmm. Read Birthing from Within. Read Sarah Buckley's Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering. Just these empowering, um, thought-provoking ways of thinking about birth and per pregnancy and mm -hmm. preparing for that awesome event. Um, and whatever other resources that you come in, talk to, in contact with, I just recommend asking yourself how, if this author or producer of this resource was to stick a label on me, or maybe a few labels, what labels would they put on me? And do I like those labels or not? And if not, mm. then don't read that book or watch that intro film about the first trimester or don't well, that's a whole nother continue episode that. right there is the right. labels yeah who you know if, if you're labeled as a well, what do you mean by labels so if they if you feel labeled as a client or a patient as you if you feel labeled as high risk or high responsibility if you feel that oh. you'd be labeled as um the patient client thing ties into some of this, but would they think to label you as an individual with unique circumstances or as just kind of one who has policies, complies with policies mm -hmm. as they are, does what is done, right? Um, whether they would label you as an empowered birth giver or whether it label you as the patient in room three. 
Interesting. So that's your first filter and in, in how you get your information is deciding how they label you and inherently how they label you as the birth giver. I think it's a really important question. Yeah, that's ask. a really yeah. cool way to. So that's what I'm going to write my master's thesis about, I think. Yeah, so. that's really good. So kind of honing in first, how does that person see me? Mm-hmm. And if I agree with it, then let's consume their information. If I don't mm-hmm. agree with that, then let's find somebody else. Hmm. Very, very cool. Thank you so much. Fun. I can honestly talk to you all day because words are cool when they're coming out of <laughs> you. You're just like word, I don't know, like dark chocolate. <laughs> silky dark chocolate I don't know. thank you so much I, I just love listening to your podcast and I love all the words work you're doing with birth words and helping people thanks language <laughs> for a better birth <laughs> <laughs> she got it there's the tagline thank you so much for having me Sarah it was so fun to chat with you thank you Please visit us at birthcircle.com, join our Facebook groups, or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience. And thank you to LaunchPod Media, who produces these podcasts.